Well, a city slicker was on a business trip. He was driving through the countryside when he accidentally ran his car into a ditch. Well, about that time, a farmer, along with his horse, trotted by. The businessman asked the farmer if he could pull his car, hitch up his horse and pull his car out of the ditch. Well, the farmer was happy to comply. He said, well, old buddy will be happy to help. And so he hitched old buddy to the car, and then he yelled, pull, Nellie, pull. Well, the horse didn't flinch. Then he screamed, pull, Daisy, pull. The horse stood still. Again, he barked, pull, Coco, pull. The horse remained still. Well, finally, the farmer said softly, he said, pull, buddy, pull. And immediately, old buddy pulled that car right out of the ditch. Of course, the stranger was astonished. I mean, three times the farmer had called the horse by the wrong name. Why? Well, the farmer explained. He said, well, old buddy is blind, and he's got a lazy streak, and if he had thought he was the only horse pulling, he wouldn't even have tried. (laughs) Well, this is the approach that the author of Hebrews is taking with his readers. He's encouraging them to walk by faith, and he wants them to know that they are not alone. Chapter 11 showed us how all of Israel's heroes won God's approval by faith, not by works. The Hebrews who had received this letter were not the first to have lived by faith. And so he begins chapter 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And who are these witnesses? Well, taken in context here, it's the men and women of faith spoken of in chapter 11. Now, some people interpret this cloud of witnesses as people in heaven looking down on us to cheer us on. That the spirit of some dead saint may be looking over your shoulder at any time. Not so. Trust me, citizens of heaven have far more to interest them than us. They're at the feet of Jesus. They are praising the king of kings. They are beholding the glories of God. They're not worried about us. No, the cloud of witnesses are the people of faith in chapter 11. Not because they are now witnessing, but because they have left behind a witness. The record of their lives testifies that it can be done. That if they could hold fast to their faith in a fallen world, we can too. And in light of their witness, we're told, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which is so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here the Christian life is referred to as a race. This is a common New Testament analogy. The Christian life is likened to a foot race, not a sprint, but a marathon. You know, some Christians are quick out of the blocks. They give their life to Jesus, and they get all fired up to serve. But they don't make it through the first turn before they run out of steam. God isn't interested in flashing the pan, Christians. He wants us to run with endurance. And to do so, the writer encourages us here to dress for success, to dress for endurance. He says, to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. We need to shed two kinds of hindrances, weights and ensnaring sins. You would never see a competitive runner in a trench coat. 
or in army boots or carrying a backpack. He gets rid of every weight that might slow him down. A runner's clothes are lightweight and wind-resistant, and they're designed to allow the greatest range of movement. In fact, the ancient Olympians ran naked. All Greece racers were streakers. The goal was to run unencumbered. Realize weights in life are those issues that no one would necessarily call sinful. There's nothing evil about them per se. They just make it more difficult to achieve our goal. Like extra baggage, they tend to drag us down. You know, if you've done any travel, you've learned that the enjoyment of your trip is in direct proportion to how light you can pack. Try navigating an airport, lugging around a lot of luggage, and it's torture. And this is the key to living a Christian life, a victorious and vital Christian life. Downsize. Cull away the fluff and the stuff. Lighten your load. It makes the travel easier. We need to ask ourselves constantly, what activities, what commitments or pastimes are sucking up my energy and resources without directing me or others to Jesus? Where do I invest time without gaining a godly reward for it? When it comes to spiritual growth, what's slowing me down? What's getting in my way? We need to find our weights, and then we need to lay them aside. And along with the weights, a Christian also needs to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares you. I'm sure you realize we're not all vulnerable to the same temptations. One person battles alcohol. Another person struggles with anger or gossip or lust. Your ensnaring sin is whatever it is that causes you the most trouble. What is it that consistently trips you up in your spiritual walk? He's saying here, don't live in denial. Only Egyptians live in denial. Denial. Don't you live in denial? We need to come clean. We need to face up to our sins squarely. Understand, the keys to victory in the Christian life are identify and then crucify. Identify, then crucify. Jesus died on the cross to put an end to your sin. Thus, you need to lay aside that sin that so easily ensnares you. Lay it on Jesus' shoulders. He paid the price for it. Believe that his payment satisfied your debt and has broken that sin's power. It's through faith in Christ crucified that we can live in victory. And here's how to walk by faith. We lay aside weights. We lay aside those ensnaring sins. And as we do, we look unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to fixate on our example. Consider what Jesus did on the cross. Chapter 11 listed dozens of Hebrew elders with impressive faith, but the greatest example of faith by far was our Lord Jesus. He endured the cross in all of its pain, the nails, the rejection, the scourging, 
the agony, the separation from his father. All the while he despised the shame. The cross was meant for capital criminals, not for the sinless son of God. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. What motivated Jesus was the joy of pleasing God and the joy of saving you. That's what motivated him. Faith enabled Jesus to keep his eyes on the joy ahead, not the pain at hand. And if you stay focused on Jesus, faith will do the same for you. See, it reminds me of the famous track meet that occurred on August the 7th, 1954. The world's two best milers at the time squared off in what was touted as the Miracle Mile. John Landy and Roger Bannister were running neck and neck as the men turned down the final back stretch. Landy had a small lead, but as they rounded the turn, the crowd let out this enormous roar. Because of the noise, Landy could no longer hear Bannister's foot striking the ground behind him, and it caused him to make a fatal mistake. He turned his head to look back. And as soon as he did, Roger Bannister initiated his kick, passing Landy, and eventually beating him by five yards. See, in the midst of a trial, or in the middle of persecution, the worst mistake to make is to look back on the world that you've left behind. No, fix your eyes squarely on Jesus. Lock on to the joy that is ultimately yours if you follow him to the end. And then he says in verse 3, he says, For consider him... That is Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider Jesus. In short, that's the theme of the entire book of Hebrews, isn't it? And we've considered Jesus now in multiple ways. His deity, his humanity, his rest for our soul, his priesthood, his sacrifice. But here we're told to consider his endurance. Jesus was tortured. He was executed at the hands of a bloodthirsty mob. And yet he never gave up. Jesus never caved in. Now what lesser trial is God asking you to endure? The author reminds us in verse 4. He says, you, may, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. See, Jesus, he suffered. <laughs> what you're going through right now, not exactly the same. Apparently, the Hebrews were tasting some minor persecution. Maybe they had been ostracized socially or penalized financially somehow. It was enough for them to throw a pity party. That was what happened. And yet here the writer reminds them that none of their members had been fed to the lions None of them had been sawn in two like Isaiah. None of them had been nailed to a cross like Jesus. He's saying, get a grip. Former believers suffered far more than they did, and yet still stood strong in their faith. You know, sometimes we think we're candidates for martyrdom just because we've been snubbed by our peers. Or we weren't invited to the office party. Poor you. Poor baby. The persecution we suffer in America is trivial compared to what's been or what could be. And so he says in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. 
And here he quotes from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. A good parent will consistently and biblically discipline his or her kids. We need to understand, parents, that our job is to curb our child's rebellion. And likewise, God disciplines his kids. When you become a child of God, expect the Father to correct you from time to time. Disciples are never made without discipline. And God chastens his kids primarily through our circumstances. God is good at throwing a wrench in our plans to grab our attention. He intervenes in our lives to correct us or to direct us or to protect us. You remember Job's hardships corrected his misconceptions about life. The fish that swallowed Jonah redirected him to Nineveh. Paul's thorn in the flesh protected him from becoming arrogant and getting the big head. In those times when God engineers a hardship, he's being a good dad who's faithfully disciplining his kids. And then he says in verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. You know, often when hardships come our way, we feel as if God has abandoned us, that he really doesn't love us. But the exact opposite is true. Here we're told God's discipline in our lives is proof of his love. He says, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? You know, as a kid, just before my dad would spank me, and it didn't happen often, I mean, I was such a good kid. (laughs) But just before my dad spanked me, which was quite regularly, to be honest, he'd always say, Sandy, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I never believed him, not once, until I became a dad. No, a wise son accepts and trusts his father's loving discipline. It's a fool who bucks and disrespects his dad. The fact that God disciplines us, that he doesn't let us continue to go our aimless way, is proof that he loves us. For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Ask a child three minutes after he's been disciplined if it was fun. He'll say, nope. But ask him 30 years later. If he appreciates his father's discipline, chances are his perspective will change. And so it is with God's discipline. The pain and the hardship that God allows has to be measured by its long-term effect, not its immediate sting or discomfort. Verse 12 tells us, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down. Hey, hey, just because God's disciplining you, don't, don't get discouraged. 
Don't give up. Strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Just because God at times knocks us down doesn't mean he's knocked us out. No, take heart. God's discipline is the result of God's love. And then he says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now, when God chooses to discipline us, there is one fatal reaction that we should always avoid. Don't become bitter. Don't get bitter. Don't grow bitter toward God or toward the instrument that God uses to initiate the spanking. Notice here, bitterness is the result of falling short of God's grace. I have a friend of mine who struggled for years with bitter feelings toward the woman who murdered her mom. She thought she had made progress until she saw a gal at work who looked like her mom's murderer. The mere sight of this woman triggered all sorts of bitter feelings and emotions within my friend. To make matters worse, the woman's office was four doors down, and she had to see this woman constantly. My friend knew she had to somehow overcome her bitterness. So one day she approached the woman and the two women introduced themselves. Well, when my friend heard the woman's name, she was stunned. The girl's name was Grace. And that's when the Holy Spirit spoke to my friend. The key to overcoming bitter feelings is to recall God's grace toward you. Folks who know grace will show grace when we realize all that God has chosen to forgive us, how then can we withhold love and forgiveness from others? From then on, whenever my friend saw grace, she was reminded of God's power to overcome bitterness. Verse 16 says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You recall how Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright. He exploited his brother's hunger. He traded him a bowl of stew for the family blessing. Later, Jacob even conned a confirmation out of his dead. And it all embittered Esau. He stewed over the stew. It stifled any repentance and any progress he might make toward God. You see, realize bitterness is a blocker. It will block those things that God wants to work in your life. It impedes God's work in you. As long as you're obsessing over the other guy's crimes... Even if, like Esau, you want God in your life, you'll miss him because you're dealing with the other guy's sin rather than your own. You see, if you're resenting, you're not repenting. And that was the problem with Esau. That's why he never made it back to God. Beware of bitterness. 
Now in the last half of chapter 12, the author of Hebrews sums up the theme of his book. Through Jesus, God has made a new covenant with his people that replaced the old covenant he had made through Moses. A better way was established for mankind to relate to God. There's no reason now that these Jews, Jewish believers should retreat back to Judaism. No, Jesus is better than Judaism in every respect. And to once more illustrate the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant over Moses and the old covenant, the writer here of Hebrews compares the two mountains from which these covenants came. The old covenant came from Mount Sinai in the wilderness, whereas the new covenant comes from Mount Zion, or heaven itself. Verse 18 addresses these Hebrew believers. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burn with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, even Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Wow, when God met with the Hebrew people at Mount Sinai, the manifestations of his presence were frightful and scary and intimidating. God put his holiness on display. Coming to God was an audience with the Almighty, not a stroll in the park. Neither man nor beast was allowed to touch God's holy mountain or else they would be struck dead on the spot. The point being that the old covenant offered limited access to God's presence and no assurance at all of his acceptance. Moses was Israel's mediator, yet even he stood on the outside looking in. Moses trembled before God. And yet look how different the approach is under the new covenant, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. This all speaks of openness and acceptance and assurance. Rather than keep us on the outside, the new covenant registers us as citizens of heaven, no less. We have membership, and with that membership comes privileges. In Christ, we are just men made perfect. Jesus mediates for us. We've been sprinkled with his better blood. The martyr Abel's blood cried out from the ground for vengeance on his assailant Cain. But Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness and mercy, and peace, and love. We have come to a better mountain. And thus, verse 25 tells us, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. 
When God spoke from Mount Sinai, the ground rumbled. The voice of God shook the mountain. No one can escape God's voice. That was true then, and it is even more so now. God's voice still speaks through the new covenant, and today no one can escape his overtures of grace. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. The old covenant began with a shaking, whereas the new covenant would end with a universal shake-up. Under the old covenant, one mountain shook, but as the age of grace concludes, we're told in Scripture that the whole universe will be knocked off its foundations. The book of Revelation, and we'll get to it pretty soon, forecasts cataclysmic last day's judgments that will rock our world. Everything man-made will be destroyed. When the smoke clears, all that's left standing will be God, His truth, and the souls who have followed Jesus. This is why it's foolish for you or I to put our trust in anything labeled made on earth. I hope you know you should put your trust in God. Realize 11 millionaires went down with the Titanic. 11. One that survived said he left $300,000 worth of money, jewelry, and securities in his cabin. Later he made the statement, At the time, the money seemed a mockery. I picked up three oranges instead. You know, when God rocks this world, man-made values and treasures will become a joke. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. In other words, live for the oranges. For what will fuel your faith and what will last forever? For faith is all that survives when the shaking stops. Well, this chapter closes by reminding us our God is a consuming fire. And God hasn't changed, friends. He's still holy and fiery and unapproachable on our own. But the terms of our relationship with Him have changed, for in Christ, Rather than scorch us, the holy fire that is God melts us and warms us and even lights our path. In Christ, we hold on to a new covenant with God by faith. Well, in chapter 13, the doctrine now is behind us. And the author tackles some practical matters facing church life. Verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Not everything is coming to an end. Let brotherly love continue. And do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. That man that helped you change that flat tire that day, or who kept your child from running into a busy street, Or that couple who bought you a meal after you lost your job? At the time, you just thought they were random strangers. But in retrospect, 
Do you think they could have been angels incognito? Perhaps. Angels unawares? According to the writer of Hebrews, yes. Then he says, verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. First century Roman prisoners didn't have food or clothes unless it was supplied to them by their friends on the outside of the jail. And here the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the family of God not to forget their friends and their loved ones who've been incarcerated for their faith. There are folks today in our world who have been jailed for their Christian faith. They need our prayers and support. Verse 4 tells us, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, the word here translated bed can be rendered sexual intimacy. Remember, sex is God's idea. I hope you remember that. God created sex. And not just for procreation, but for pleasure. And to maximize and protect that pleasure, God has restrict, restricted sexual activity to heterosexual marriage. To one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant relationship. Sex prior to marriage is fornication. Sex outside of marriage is adultery. Both are sins in the eyes of God. Both are deviations from God's design, and God will judge those who participate. But the marriage bed is undefiled. In other words, it's pure. Verse 4 teaches us that any sex act between a husband and a wife that is loving and giving and agreed upon is pleasing and acceptable to God. Did you know that sex is God's gift to marriage? It is. According to WebMD, if you want to relieve stress, lower your blood pressure, boost your immune system, burn calories, reduce your risk of heart attack, improve your mood, relieve minor aches and pains, avoid prostate cancer, of course all guys want to do that, and sleep better than have lots of sex. According to WebMD, Hebrews 13 verse 4 teaches us that it's just not for you to take what doesn't belong to you. Wait and get married first. Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Rather than harbor resentment, let's learn contentment. You know, everyone wants more, but you know the key to happiness is to need less. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And here is the secret to contentment. It's realizing that Jesus is more than enough. There's not a need I have that Jesus can't fulfill, and he's always with me. He promises to never leave me or forsake me. Verse 6, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. 
There are many ways that you can support your pastor, but there's nothing more important you can do for him than to pray for him. And here's the logic behind that. Since he speaks to you on behalf of God, then you should speak to God on behalf of him. Pray for him. This applies to men whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. For two chapters now, we've been looking at examples of faith and faith's outcome. Hopefully, your pastors and elders are also examples of faith. And here it says that you should follow their faith. But be careful, for even your pastor is fallible. We all have clay feet. And that's why verse 8 reminds us, consider Jesus. Keep him as your example. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the ultimate example of never-failing faith. His ways are innovative and timely, but his truth and his intentions remain timeless. The methods of our Lord are adaptable, but his character is immutable. Trust in Jesus. Consider him. And that's why we're told in verse 9, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Truth, God's truth, is not a moving target. Sound doctrine is the same doctrine taught by Jesus, reiterated by Paul, and recorded in the Scripture. Here's a useful adage about doctrine. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. You remember Judaism highlighted the dietary or the kosher laws. According to Judaism, eat right and you'll go to heaven. Well, the truth is, eat right or you might go to heaven faster. But Jesus taught us that righteousness isn't a matter of what we put in our stomach. It's what God puts into our heart. These Hebrew believers had escaped this kind of behavioral bondage. The writer warns them not to go back. The menu for pleasing God and going to heaven is grace. And then he says in verse 10, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now again, these Jewish believers in Jesus had been banned from the temple and could no longer offer an animal sacrifice. And they worried, how could they then be accepted by God? But the people who should have been worried were those within the temple who were coming to the altar and were offering the animal sacrifices. For bulls and goats are inferior sacrifices to the sacrifice of Jesus. Oh, it's far better to partake of Jesus, the bread of life, at the altar of faith. He says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, the Old Testament sacrifices all spoke prophetically. They spoke prophetically of Jesus, and they even spoke prophetically of the end of Judaism. For after the animals were sacrificed, their carcasses were taken outside the camp of Israel, outside the walls of Jerusalem, and burned. 
This foreshadowed the fact that the ultimate end of all sin would occur outside Jewish boundaries. And when you go with me to Israel, you see this firsthand when we tour Jerusalem and when we walk the walls. Thus, in God's providence, Jesus was crucified north of the walls of Jerusalem, outside the city's walls, at a place called Golgotha. Golgotha was outside the walls, or outside the camp, just as we're told here. The sacrifices were eventually offered outside, or burned outside the walls. And thus the writer concludes from this, Therefore let us go forth to him. Where? Where is Jesus? He's outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. He's telling these Hebrews that God is to be found now outside of Judaism. Jesus died outside the priestly jurisdiction of Judaism. Thus, believers in Jesus are no longer bound by Jewish laws and sacrifices and rituals. We no longer relate to God through performance-based religion. Christianity is faith-based and grace-based. And if you're to live by faith, you can't be re-entangled into a legalistic culture. To live by faith and grace, you have to leave the camp, he's saying. Freedom is outside the walls. Hebrew believers need to abandon their old religion and embrace Jesus, for he is greater than it all. But some of these Jews had some sentimental attraction to the sacrifices, and they they just felt like offering a lamb was the thing to do. I mean, it was just ingrained in them. And this is why he says, if you need to offer a sacrifice, therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. If you need to sacrifice, make a sacrifice, here's a new covenant sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise. You should thank God for his amazing grace towards you. The giving of thanks is a sacrifice of praise. And then he mentions two other new covenant sacrifices. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. If you've got to make a sacrifice, here's three ways to do it. Praise or gratitude, good deeds, and generous giving are all new covenant sacrifices in which God is well pleased. And then verse 17 tells us, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Now, today's church is not only in the need of good leaders, we also need good followers. A good follower knows his pastor is human, and yet he trusts God to work through him. You see, as long as a pastor's teaching is biblical, his conduct is moral, and his handling of people and money are ethical, then a good follower will see to it that he supports and prays for his pastor. You know, you could do a lot worse than a pastor who's biblical, moral, and ethical. What he's saying is is if you have a pastor who's following God, then you should follow him. 
Here's the problem in churches today. Leaders can't lead if the members won't follow. You know, it's true. The person who can't lead and won't follow makes a dandy roadblock. As kids, one of our favorite games was follow the leader. You remember that? But as adults, we grow jaded, don't we? Oh, we've trusted in, the leader, in a leader in the past, and we got burned, and now it becomes harder to follow someone. And yet, if we're to please God, we need to ask him to heal us of our cynicism. For as with any army, God's army has a chain of command. And at times, we are all required to fall in line. We're to submit to the leaders who are submitted to God. For the only thing harder than following is leading. Trust me. It's not easy being a spiritual leader. For notice the writer of Hebrews says of the pastor and the elders, they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Do you realize that when Calvary Chapel Stone Mountains gets summoned to the judgment seat of Christ, the first person that will have to give an account is going to be me. And then as you step up and all these knuckle-headed things you've done are revealed, God's going to look at me and say, Sandy, what were you doing? Why weren't you helping them? Do you understand that? It's going to be tough on me. According to James 3 verse 1, as your teacher, I will incur a stricter judgment. This is why leaders of your church need your prayers. And they need your compliance and cooperation. And there's another reason why you should follow the leader. He says, let them do so. That is, let them watch out for your souls with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, you don't want to make your pastor's job more stressful than it already is. It's not in anyone's best interest to have a pastor who dislikes his job. If a pastor gets too discouraged... If his heart isn't in it, he won't be a very good pastor. Reminds me of the mom who went in and shook her son, wake him up to go to church. Come on, Johnny, it's Sunday. You've got to go to church. He rolled back over. He said, oh, Ma, do I have to go every week? The mother replied, Johnny, of course you do. You're the pastor. <laughs> no congregation wants to cultivate a sourpuss pastor. To encourage your pastor, follow verse 18. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. Pray for your pastor. His job is to work hard and maintain his integrity. Your job is to lift him up in prayer. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. The writer here requests prayer because he hopes to visit them in the near future. And so the writer of Hebrews closes with a benediction. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Notice under the old covenant, the sheep died for the shepherd. But under the new covenant, the shepherd dies for the sheep. Jesus, that great shepherd, died in our place. To make you complete in every good work, to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Jesus works in us for us to do good works. This is Christianity. We work out what he works in. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. The theme of Hebrews has been the superiority of Jesus. He is better than anyone, anything, any other way. It's taken the author 13 chapters, but compared to what could have been written, it was just a few words. And then he says in verse 23, Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Apparently, he was writing from Rome in Italy, probably to the church in Jerusalem. In verse 25, he signs off, grace be with you all, amen. And there we have the book of Hebrews. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have.